Well, it's good to see all of you. Um, I was due to come back Friday night, and my flight got canceled um, out of Newark Airport, so I spent Friday night in the airport and flew home yesterday. Um, so if I'm, you know, start leaning over, <laughs> um, we're taking a little nap in the middle of the sermon, you'll know why. Um, feel free to just wake me up and we'll try to keep going. Um, but it's been, it was a long journey home, but we had a really wonderful, uh, basically three weeks in um, Africa with a few days of vacation for me on either side. And um, we will be on August 26th, uh, Ginger Holt and Chris and Bill Thompson and my daughter Audra and I will be sharing the service that morning and sharing um, what we learned and experienced uh, more fully there. I'll tell a few stories this morning, but um, be sure to be here on August 26th. And on the 28th, we're going to be hosting, I think, here at the church, an opportunity for people who really want to hear more um, and hear the full, some of, see all our photos and all of that. Um, so put those dates on your calendar and there'll be more information coming out soon. So three weeks ago today, we were um, just arriving and we were in Kigali, Rwanda, and we went to a church service out in the rural area um, at a cooperative that the organization we were there with, African Road, um, has um, partnered with. And uh, the church service um, had a lot more dancing than we've seen this morning. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we were pulled out on the floor ourselves. And um, I was glad that I'd, I'd been there before because I know you just don't worry about it. You just get out there and, and move somehow. And, um, they, they laugh at you, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, but we were lots of dancing and lots of singing and um, beautiful sermon by my friend, Pastor Stephen, who's just this wonderful, humble Rwandan pastor who has um, loved and nurtured orphans in Rwanda since right after, at, right after the genocide. And uh, then afterwards, uh, with the women gathered together, um, some of the women that are part of a cooperative that's uh, part of this group, and they shared um, what, how their lives have changed in the last uh, few years being a part of this cooperative. Now, three years ago, when I went to Rwanda for the first time, I was able to go to hear them um, and see their training um, in this makeshift building, and they were gathered with these trainers from Uganda who had come to share with them this model of cooperative banking and business development. And so here were these women, who most of them who were illiterate and had very little education, um, learning basic accounting skills and um, how to think about um, what they had and how to dream and, and read the market. And so it was so wonderful to be there three years later and to hear how their lives had grown, how they were able to now um, feed their kids and send them to school and take care of their families and to invest in new businesses and hire people. And this had, um, has all happened in the last three years, but it really began in Uganda, where we didn't visit. But I wanted to tell you the story uh, this morning of where this began with another friend of mine named David Clummy. 
Uh, David um, is a son, pastor's son, and he was sent away to boarding school in Uganda. And while he was at boarding school, he recognized that he and his friends of some privilege in the boarding school had plenty, while the village around them had very little. And so David began to start a club at his boarding school where they would take and collect the clothes, extra clothes that they were going to give away at the end of the term, any extra food, extra supplies, and begin to share it with the neighboring villages. And so they began to bring out um, these things and share with the villages, and through this he began to develop relationships, and then he graduated and he went on to college, and he began to think, you know, I'm learning all of these business principles, and um, this is really wonderful that we're giving them things, but, but I wonder if these business principles that I'm learning in business school could be shared with these villagers that were helping in this village. So he began a program which is now called, uh, the acronym or the word is VCOBA, which is Village Cooperative Banking. And so David began to teach uh, the people in this village and he began with uh, the, the parents of disabled children. Because in this traditional culture, they think that if you have a disabled child, you're, you're under some sort of a curse. And so those, those families with disabled children were marginalized out of the village and not given all of the opportunities that other people and families were. So David began with those families to teach them good business practice, to ask them um, what they had that they could begin to sell, to, to teach them to work together and to, to share resources, and eventually, and also to teach them um, organic farming. And so eventually their, their farms and they began to look amazing and they began to have a little bit more to help support themselves and everyone around them said, you know, there's, there's something going on and we thought that these families were cursed, but actually we see that they have something to teach us. And so that began to spread in that community. And, and so this VCOBA process of, of just teaching these basic business practices has, has begun to grow beyond Uganda. And then when I was there three years ago to these women in Rwanda and to Burundi and to Kenya and Tanzania and all around that region. And I love this model because it's an African, African model coming out of, from Africans and being shared. Um, between them. And when we were there that morning, we got to see the results of, of these women who have learned to work together. What David's model really begins with is, is this question of, what do you have? Because he realized what he was hearing from the villagers is, I need this, I need that, I don't have this, I want that. And he began to say, okay, not what do you need, 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 but what do you have, have, have? And so as they begin to say, well, I have banana leaves, or I have a few crops, or together maybe we could, you could teach me to sow, and I could bring something else. And as they began to see what they had between them, then that begins to be the basis for their livelihoods and their lives to be changed. And it seems to me this morning, as we come to this conversation about gratitude, the, the starting point for gratitude is to ask ourselves that question. What do I have? To get out of the mode of what, what's missing and what we, do, we need or we want, and to consider what, what do I have right here in this moment, and giving thanks for that.
So would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that at the basic level, we always can say thank you for your presence with us that never leaves us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's look at the story that Darlene read for us just a few minutes ago, this story of, of ten lepers who were healed. Jesus runs into them at a village, and it, and it says in the text, keeping their distance, they yelled at Jesus and said, heal us. It's, they kept their distance because in that culture at that time, similar to these, these families I was telling you about, if you had leprosy, you weren't allowed to come close or even touch anyone else because they would be unclean and, and you were perhaps thought to be contagious. And so, so here were these lepers keeping their distance where they were supposed to be, calling out to Jesus and saying, heal us. And Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priests because it was only the priests and the religious leaders at the time that could declare someone clean, fit to be back in society, fit to be back in the temple. And so keeping their distance, they said, Jesus, heal us. And so he says, go and show yourself to the priest. And in that, in that act of leaving and going back to the priest, in that moment, it says they are healed. And then it, the text goes on and says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And here is the outlier. The one who didn't keep his distance. The one who came close before he had even been told that he could come close by the priests came close and prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and said, thank you. It wasn't the healing or the priest's blessing that closed the distance between he and Jesus. It was his sense of gratitude. And so I think gratitude can close the distance that we often feel between ourselves, between ourselves and God. It, it's gratitude that, that brings us closer in. And I love this contrast between the far away, distant calling, heal me, and the close in, thank you, that we see from this one leper. And we read a little further, and it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, Praising God with a loud voice, he prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. And he was a Samaritan. The writer of Luke wants us to pay attention to that because Samaritans were also cast out. Cast out because of these deep ethnic and tribal identities that went very far back. The Samaritans were thought to be half-bloods and not welcome into the temple and not welcome into the mainstream of Jewish life. They lived in their own little, little space. And so, and so here is the Samaritan, the one that is cast out, the one that has been rejected, coming back to Jesus. And the Samaritan becomes the one that is the teacher to everyone else. 
Our world is so full of these kinds of divisions. I don't know what is real for you, but we're filled, our news is filled with, with all sorts of ways that people divide themselves. Democrats, Republicans, Muslims, Christians, people divided by the color of their skin. And when we were in Rwanda, um, we heard a lot, as you can imagine, about the distinction between the Hutu and the Tutsis. And I'm sure we are all familiar with the history, um, whether you've seen the movie Hotel Rwanda or just followed along the last 25 years ago or so. But as a remi reminder, um, and I, it's taken me, I think, until this trip to figure, get in my head what were the Tutsis and who were the Hutus, because um, it just takes a while to get that all straight. But the Tutsi people, when the colonists came in, the French and the, the Belgians, the Tutsis were chosen to be the ones that were invested with power and authority and responsibility. And so the Tutsis grew in, in their influence in the society and were favored by the colonists, which of course kept the Hutu tribe, tribal identities, those who associate with the Hutus, there, there began to be some division and resentment and separation. And so in the 1950s and 60s, as the colonists left, the Hutus began to react, and they began to, to oppress the Tutsis, who had been the favored ones. And so many Tutsis left Rwanda and, and, and went away and, and were living in exile in places like Congo and Burundi and Tanzania and, and all around the world. So you have these Tutsis that are outside of Rwanda, some still in that are being um, oppressed, and, these, these hoots, and this, this constant resentment and tension. And over those next 40, 50 years, um, just little seeds here and there just began, the division began to get bigger and bigger. And the, the, the fire, the bonfire began to be built with, with all different, the wood of, of prejudice and discrimination. And so when the plane was shot down of the president in the middle of the peace talks in 1994, the fire was lit, and in 100 days, a million people were murdered, a million Tutsis. 1994. So while we were there in Rwanda, uh, we were invited to spend a day um, in, a, in a city called, town called Niamata, and we toured a, toured a church, and you'll hear more about this, I'm sure, um, from Bill and Ginger and Chris and Audra, but um, when we were, we, we toured this church where 10,000 Tutsis had come to take refuge. And instead, 10,000 of them were slaughtered in that space. And so we walked through the church, and the pews were there, and, and they, they took all of the clothes of those who were killed and just lined them on the pews. And there's coffins that are, that are stacked six high with up to 15 people in a, remains in a, in a coffin. And there were only seven people that escaped out of, out of that situation, and one woman came and spoke with us, one of those women came and spoke with us that day. And so we listened to her story and we were able to, to hold her hands and 
uh, meet her and hear her journey and how she was able to escape and what it was like for her to be in that space. And as you can imagine, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult moment and um, tough to be there. But then after that, we drove to a, a house that was nearby, about 15 minutes away. And at that house, we, we went under a tent. And, and in that tent were, were two, were, well, the women sat on one side and the men were on the other. And most of the men on this side were men that had been perpetrators in the genocide. So mostly Hutu men who had killed and participated in the genocide. And on the other side were many Tutsi women whose husbands had been killed and who had been harmed in some way or, or, or children, young, young people that had been orphaned. And through this program, REACH, um, that we partner with, um, the perpetrators and the victims have, have come together and have told each, other's, told each other their stories and have come together in community. And so they told their stories about, about what it was like to be a perpetrator, what it was like to be a victim, and how over the last few years they have begun to be in community together. And in fact, the house that we were, we were meeting at nearby, um, that was a house that was built by perpetrators of the genocide, the same men who had killed this young man's father built this house for this young man to live in. Unbelievable, unexplainable forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, so we divide ourselves in so many ways. And our divisions can have such huge consequences. You know, it seems like just such a little thing to, to not like someone because of their politics. It seems like such a little thing to, to, to think negatively about certain people from a certain part of the country or, or to, to whatever that is for you. I, I don't know, but I was confronted in that day and in those conversations with, with all of the ways that I may be polite and nice and kind and no one may ever know, and yet inside I divide myself from others. And inside I keep them at a distance. And what is it like to instead, to instead to live in a sense knowing that we are all connected? And I think actually Gratitude is one of the things that brings us close together. Gratitude is one of the paths we take to close the distance between us and the other, between us and God. Gratitude softens us to be able to move close. And in this text, we hear the Samaritan himself, the other person, the person that we're not supposed to like, the person that's outside, teaching those that were close about what it means to be a person of compassion and a person of gratitude and to be connected. The bridge is crossed by this man being willing to say thank you. And um, reading beyond where Darlene read, it says, Jesus said, We're not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? 
Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now, I don't think Jesus is being condemning of the other nine. I actually think he was probably quite understanding of the fact that they wanted to run to the priest and get blessed and be healed and reintegrate into their society. And yet, I think actually he's saying, where are they? Why aren't they here to join the party with us? Why aren't they here to to reconnect? Why didn't they come close to experience this reconciliation? And so we are invited as well to think about all of the ways that we, we keep ourselves apart. And I admit to you, I struggle often with gratitude because, I, first of all, I don't like to feel patronized. Secondly, I don't like to feel like I need something from anybody. I want to think that I have everything that I need right here. And also, I have all sorts of ideas about how the world should work and who's in and who's out, and I kind of am attached to the way I see things. And so I find gratitude sometimes difficult because gratitude means that I have to be vulnerable. Gratitude means that we have to draw close. Gratitude means that we have to see another person. And the Samaritan showed the way. And Jesus said to him, the one who was a Samaritan, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The other lepers may have been healed, but the Samaritan was also saved. Saved from from the the boundaries of, of who's in and who's out. Saved from from what must have been the the, um, shame he felt from being a leper and being a Samaritan. Saved because of his act of being willing to say thank you. Go in faith. Your faith has saved you. We think gratitude is an act of weakness when in fact gratitude is in deep strength. It's not this Pollyanna-ish looking at the world and just saying, oh, I'm so thankful for everything. It's reaching in, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of our own, our own, um, our own ways that we divide the world and the ways we want to control and finding something to be thankful for. I intended to write this sermon on my way home from Africa on the plane ride this last, um, these last couple days, and um, instead, I ended up with my flight canceled in Newark on Friday night, and I'm having to spend the night in Newark Airport um, with my head, you know, trying to sleep on this table, and, and passengers not happy. There were 104 flights that were canceled or delayed on Friday night in Newark. So there's thousands of, of really grumpy people all together. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be working on my sermon, but I'm jet-lagged, and I'm stuck in this airport, and, and I know I'm preaching on gratitude, and oh, God. <laughs> so I guess, you know, even though I'm not feeling grateful, I will practice <laughs> gratitude. And, um, and so I, um, I practiced, <laughs> not, not happily, but, but, but I kept trying to think, okay, I've got, I can't, I can't preach it if I don't practice it. And on top of that, I was just with all of these people whose, whose families had been, been murdered and who were living in, you know, on dirt floors and had nothing. And, and so if I can't find something to be grateful for here in Newark Airport at 2 in the morning, 
um, there's a problem. And, and so it was just an interesting practice to, to, to start then noticing, okay, what do I have in this moment? What is here? You know, I mean, what is here is the fact that I was able to travel to Africa at all. What is here is, is the patience and beauty of these airline employees that are being so gracious with each person that comes to see them, no matter how much they're getting yelled at. What is here is, is um, you know, the fact that I had packed an eye mask and that my daughter had a pair of socks in her, in her backpack that I could put on and keep my feet warm. And um, what is here is that we then got to have breakfast together yesterday morning for the last time and sit there and, um, and have her tell me what was important to her about the trip and see the tears in her eyes as she had talked about talked about her experience in Rwanda. And I wasn't grateful that I got stuck in Newark, <laughs> but I was grateful for what I found there. And that's what gratitude does, is it takes us from the distance to being close. It softens our heart to, to, to see the world in a different way, to see the one that we thought was the enemy actually our friend. And so may we also be grateful people. And may we walk the path of gratitude to take us to compassion, to take us to a place where we can see the face of God in each other. I hope I haven't rambled too much today, but thank you um, for being patient with my jet-lagged sermon. And in a few moments, we're, um, Roth is going to lead us in an African song. And it's okay to sway a little bit. Um, and we'll teach you to dance on August 26th. So. <laughs>